This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Once again, if there is a Jew you should know in your life who you would like to honor, highlight, just give a shout out on this program, please email JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com and we can give them that honor that they so richly deserve and have the thrill of hearing themselves featured on this podcast. And of course, as always, DailyGiving.org. We have crossed the $9,500 threshold. Super exciting and just so blessed to watch their growth and to savor their partnership with our podcast as they take $1 a day from Jews and budding philanthropists all over the world, channeling those aggregate dollars towards vetted causes that are impacting our community in all sorts of incredible ways. Dailygiving.org, please give them a visit today. And speaking of today, we are breaking ground on our podcast. It is rare, if ever, that we have featured two individuals at once on our podcast, but we are doing just that because in our final episode of the OU Impact Accelerator series, we have co-founders of Work At It. Those are Yael Wedick and Rivka Ariel, two wonderful, interesting, different partners in this fabulous venture, also known as Yidei Moshe. And through their work, Yael and Rivka help businesses hire at-risk youth, match them with employers, and provide personal mentoring, support, and facilitating success for young people who might otherwise be struggling in the broader Jewish community. And since these two wonderful founders were partners and, and did this together, we couldn't just choose one. And we said, you know what, let's break the mold here on Jews You Should Know and actually toggle between these two guests together and get both of their life stories and highlight the incredible work that they're doing jointly in this wonderful venture. And just a note that in this particular episode, for some reason, my voice experienced a little bit of distortion. Not sure what that was all about. And even if I was, it would bore you to death to hear about it. But thankfully, each of our wonderful guests sound just perfect, and they are what matters anyway. And of course, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments or questions to the aforementioned Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any podcast platform. Please spread the word to those who do not yet know about our wonderful show. And now, without further ado, to our conversation with Work At It co-founders Yael Wedick and Rivka Ariel. We are here with Yael Wedick and Rivka Ariel, the co-founders of Work At It. And this is pretty unusual in the annals of Jews You Should Know to highlight two individuals in one episode. But uh, we're breaking ground here and excited to welcome both of these amazing co-founders to learn about their stories and also about this unique institution. How are you, Yael and Rivka? Great, thank you. Thank you for having us. Wonderful, and, and Rivka's a little bit under the weather, but she's she's 
toughing out for us and making it happen. She and about two thirds of the United States, I think, have some sort of a <laughs> malady right now. So she's actually probably in the majority, but uh, we appreciate you being here and, uh, and making it happen today. So why don't we take it from the top and we'll start with you, Yael. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you were brought up and so forth. I grew up in Lindsay, Spring Valley, New York. And yeah, I'm a clinical social worker. Tell me a little bit about your your upbringing. Did you, uh, you grew up in a sort of a traditional home, a very observant home? What was kind of your own personal background? So I grew up observant and went to yeshivas, probably got interested in human service, like working with people. When I was younger, I used to go visit in nursing homes. And I think I just got interested in like being there for people who, you know, who just could really use an ear. And so I ultimately went into social work and have been in the field as a therapist for 25 years. What was Muncie like when you were growing up? It was a, uh, it was a different type of town than it is now, I, I would imagine. Yeah, much different. I mean, it was all sort of contained in a much smaller area. It's spread out a lot now. And I guess everybody kind of knew who everybody was, like even if you weren't friends, you know, you kind of knew everybody, you know, a little kind of small townish. Yeah, today it's uh, not quite a small town, at least in the religious Jewish right. uh, communal sense. It's exploded over, over the last number of years. Rivka, how about you? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in Brooklyn. I still live in Brooklyn, although I guess I have lived in other places before coming back to Brooklyn. I grew up in a religious home. My father was a Holocaust survivor. My mother is American. And I grew up in a home really full of chesed. My father uh, loved all Jews going through the war. I guess he saw that, you know, just being a Jew <laughs> was the most important thing. And Hashem loves, you know, all people and all Jewish people. And we grew up having tons of Russians when the Russians were first coming out of the former Soviet Union. My father spoke Russian, so we had tons of Russians at home. He had a business with his brother, and they always hired people that were down on their lock and try to give people a leg up. And he knew that a lot of those people would become his competitors, and he said that's what he wants. He wants them to be able to support themselves. So I guess some of that stuff then <laughs> is genetic and then led us into um, work at it, which we'll get into a little bit later. Sounds like an amazing, amazing man. You know, just because I, I love to hear these incredible stories, what was a little bit of your father's wartime experience? Was he in, in the camps? Did he talk about it often? You know, um, He really did not talk about it that much. He was from Poland. So when the Nazis invaded, the Russians also invaded and they had a choice who to go with. And I think I have this right. They asked like the rabbis of the town and nobody knew. They said, just, we don't know, we can't guide you. And he always was very grateful to God that he and his family chose to go with the Russians. So he was in a labor camp throughout the war. His father died of slave labor, but he sounds crazy. He was always so grateful. And um, he said that was like the best thing because he survived. And then he was pretty sick after the war. He lived in Switzerland for many years recuperating. And then he came to America and met my mother. That's amazing. We think now, you know, with, with the blessings of uh, hindsight, we're able to see that was quote, like an obvious choice, quote unquote. But back then, I think, you know, people had no idea which direction, right. you know, in that sort of tenuous uh, position. Do the Russians have to get out afterwards? I mean, you know, because under communism, it wasn't easy to escape. Right. So he was in Siberia. He, he was in the slave labor camp in Siberia and they were liberated, I guess, by the Americans. I'm not really sure. He lived in Switzerland for many years recuperating. And then he came by boat to America. And on the boat, he taught someone French and they taught him English and got off the boat and started. Uh, his brother had a small 
business and he helped build it up. They had a jewelry business and he was a real go-getter. He really, you know, tried to support his family and help as many people as possible that were refugees. Incredible. Sounds like a really special person. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to your childhood, can you think of like a galvanizing moment that helped you realize, oh, I, I want to get into the helping professions. I want to be a social worker, help people you know, with their their psychological challenges, their you know mental health challenges, things of that nature. Was that something that was part of the conversation as you were growing up? Well, I guess I would say my parents um, were both American and um, my mother is from the Midwest and she came east. She was one of the, I think she was a second graduating class in Stern College. And so she was also, I would say, probably one of the first Bali Chuba, you know, one of the early Bali Chuba. Someone who returned did not grow up observant. Um, yeah, so she didn't grow up observant, got interested in, in Kansas City, where she came from, and then her rabbi advised her to go east. Was it Rabbi Berger by any chance? I'm just curious if she had Rabbi Berger. I'm only asking because the rabbi of the shul that I... Uh... I was in for quite a few years as a big rabbi in Baltimore. His father was a rabbi in Kansas City. My mother's in her 80s, so I I don't know exactly. I forget his name. But he was a big influence on her life. And then she came to Stern and um, ultimately met my father at some educational conference. He was in Chaim Berlin. Anyway, so I guess because, you know, she came from the outside. So she was very welcoming to all kinds of people, you know, so... We had a lot of guests at home all the time. And yeah, and I guess my, yeah, so I guess, I don't know, maybe that, maybe that was part of what got me interested in social work. But I think some people are just, you know, sort of become the people people talk to and you just, it just sort of grows up organically and then evolves. And that's where I ended up. That's where I landed. What about it spoke to you early on? Was it just the sense that you felt you had an aptitude to be a sort of a non-judgmental listening ear for people. Was there some something about you that you knew that this was a, kind of a calling for you? I, I probably don't think I thought it was a calling. And I went to social work school more because I thought like, you know, just the idea of like being, you know, helping people and being present for them seemed like a good way to use my time. I kind of like, I guess in my house, you know, how you used your time was very important. The idea of doing something with your life that was be valuable to, you know, you know, be of greater values was seemed important to me. And therapy, I didn't pick up on until I was in graduate school. And so much of it was geared towards psychotherapy. And so then I got interested in graduate school and that. Rivka, what was your professional journey as you were growing up? What, what did you choose to pursue? Yeah. So my mother was one of the first from nurses ever. <laughs> she graduated Beth Israel Nursing School when she was, I think, 18. And um, I remember like people thought it was so weird that my mother was a nurse. How could a from lady be a nurse? Why was that so, just if you could help unpack, why was that so anomalous? I mean, it seems nowadays it's hard to understand. That's like such a common profession for young women to go into. So growing up was like, wow, how could your mother touch men? How could she, you know, get her hands dirty? How could she, I don't know, it was considered like weird that women, I guess, had professions. And then it was very strict then. You couldn't be married while you were in nursing school. There were like a lot of restrictions. Unbelievable. You couldn't be married in nursing school. No. What was the rationale for that? They wanted you to dedicate yourself, I guess, completely to the profession. So there were like a lot of strict rules and um, yeah, 
So I think she, maybe there was one or two, I don't know, maybe there were, I, I shouldn't say she was the only one, but she was one of the handful of from nurses. A lot of my siblings are nurses. So I, my father also loved science. So I loved science. I didn't want to be a nurse. So I ended up, um, I went to Breuer's for seminary, which was amazing. And at the same time, I went to city college. I majored in biochemistry. So I liked the hard sciences. And then I worked as a chemist for a while. And I realized I loved the drug industry and understanding how medicines work. And I wanted to understand why they were making certain business choices. So I decided to go to business school and I went to Columbia Business School and I worked for a short while as a management consultant, helping different drug companies with various problems and traveled around the country to different companies. And then eventually I worked for Novartis and then eventually for Pfizer for many years, which I'm very proud of the vaccine right now. There you go. Do you know the, uh, do you know the CEO? Um, no, he was not the CEO when I was there. So he's new. I, oh, um, I was going to ask if you can get me an interview with him. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I did email him. I'm trying. If anyone out there knows that's a connection, <laughs> let's get him on over here. Um, so anyhow, so I really, you know, I love, I love the science. I like the business aspect and I really love, you know, my career. I loved working in the industry, helping understand what people want, what doctors and patients are looking for in various kind of drug therapies and treatments. Um, and I guess through those years, a lot of people came to me and asked me for business help. Like they were looking for guidance in the corporate setting. They want to know how to interview. They want to know who to interview with. And through the years, I found myself like practicing interviewing with people and, and coaching different people just as like a one-off people heard about me and would just call me. And then also in my career itself, like different responsibilities through the years was hiring and, you know, bringing different teams on board. And that eventually parlayed into what I do at work at it. Phenomenal. I'm just so curious about what your experiences were like as probably a fairly, you talk about your mother being unique in her role as an Orthodox nurse back when that was so unpopular. I don't know of too many female Orthodox chemists who are involved in the drug industry and traveling around to, you know, major corporate drug companies. What was that experience like for you? Um, it was definitely a culture shock. I have to say it was interesting. There were very few women in any of my classes, both in, you know, biochemistry. I remember certainly in, in the very hard classes, I was like, probably the only girl, so to speak. And in business school, probably it was like 30% women. There were, I think my class was probably the first class that had any from people. There was, I was probably the only Basiaco girl at Columbia in my year. And then after my year, there, there've been, you know, many more, certainly there were probably some less traditional and maybe slightly different backgrounds, but there were other, you know, there were definitely a lot of Jewish people. I didn't realize he was Jewish until Pesach came and everyone started pulling out that matzah <laughs> from under the desk. <laughs> you were at Columbia, so, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, kind of par for the course. Yeah. yeah, so I have to say, though, that the corporate world was, especially Pfizer, was really, really nice to me. They were extremely gracious with kosher food. And every time we had a meeting, they'd order the beginning, they'd order kosher food for like the whole meeting. It was just easier for them. And they were just really, really nice about it. Then as they started tightening their budgets, they would just order for me, but they were extremely nice on Fridays. I never had a problem. They would like kick me out and say time to leave. And it was really wonderful. They were a wonderful company to work with. And this is many, many years ago when it was, it wasn't so common and they were really wonderful. And funny enough, there were other firm people that um, were in the department and joined the department. So yeah, as, as strange as it is, there, there were some. <laughs> I guess when it came to vaccine time, you didn't have a choice of uh of which one to get? <laughs> which one? <laughs> Moderna would have been treacherous, uh, traitorous. I guess. 
<laughs> so yeah, when you go back to your career, did you go immediately once you graduated school into clinical work or did you open a practice or, or work for an agency? What was your actual you know path within the psychotherapy world? Uh, so I did work for a couple of agencies and then eventually after I had my, my first child and I had left my job um, in the city, then I started a practice locally, a small practice. And I've been doing that ever since. And what's your focus? What do you, what kind of, you know, do you deal with family dynamics or are you dealing more with anxiety, depression? What's your, what's your bread and butter? For a while, I actually worked with seniors and people dealing with like aging issues and their families and just kind of coping with that life transition, um, which, you know, one would think is just natural, but <laughs> when it happens to you, it doesn't feel so natural, you know. And um, over time, I've moved into working with trauma and a lot of anxiety. And so that's pretty much what I do now. We say that there's been like a, a surge of, of mental health challenges during the pandemic. Oh my goodness. Is that something yeah. that, that's something that resonates? What what are you what are you <laughs> seeing from your vantage point? I mean, I guess, you know, if you had any level of anxiety before and you listen to the news, so your anxiety is just through the roof. And I guess people's lives, you know, that's on the one end and just in general, people's lives were upended, you know, ending up being at home in relationships that maybe functioned at a certain level. But when you put everybody in the same pod, <laughs> stir them up and leave them there for a year, you know, what happens then can be kind of intense. And yeah, so I just think in, in different ways, you know, people who were a little isolated before now, like sort of a, a sanctioned isolation, <laughs> Which, you know, just made whatever the problem was before a little more intense. So, yeah, like all across the board, it's it's been wild. And I've never had so many requests for services as I have had in the last few months. You know, just I think people <laughs> sort of at it and just are really reaching out a lot. And anxiety, you would say, is kind of the dominant challenge? Definitely big. Yeah, it's definitely up there a lot. Just managing that and, you know, finding ways to live with our, this altered reality that we're kind of in. What techniques do you uh, employ? Are you a, a CBT type uh, practitioner or what's what's your uh, general approach? Um, I was trained more psychodynamically, psychoanalytically back when I went to school. That was, <laughs> that was kind of more popular I would say, you know, I'm, I'm not a CPT person. I tend to like kind of encourage people to get to know their anxiety, to befriend it, not to see it as like some alien something that you need to get rid of, but it, it's with you for a reason. So let's let's kind of get comfortable with it, get to know it, talk to it, and and really just try to understand what drives it so that you can, you know, kind of address it in some real way. It's interesting because your, I think your approach, it's a little bit more of a throwback approach than uh, what seems to be in vogue nowadays. Right. I mean, you know, there's, I can do the mindfulness and we do, some people love to just, you know, do some like mindfulness meditation stuff to help work through it. And, you know, there are, there's a lot of different ways to deal with it. Yeah. Well, if you're doing a psychoanalytic Work. I hope you have a, a comfortable couch. That's all I can. <laughs> Here, you want to sit? 
Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we have a live shot in the background of the couch. It actually does look pretty. It looks leather, very comfortable. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So I'm curious, when did the two of you meet? Did you did you know each other at all growing up? Or I don't know if you're the same you know, generation or general age range. You both look quite young. So how did you meet first? I think that we met through like a learning Chabura. That's how we probably initially met. And what can you just describe for our listeners what that means exactly? So we had a friend that was like very into learning, you know, historical texts. I think it was Rambam that she was into. So that's uh, Nachmanides. And she started like a group to get together of, of women that were, you know, intellectual and into learning. And I think that's how I met you, yeah. And then we all got together once at your, at your house for like shoes to learn. I think that's how I met you. Really? I think you lived in different areas. Though. Yeah. Yeah. So we just had a lot of mutual friends. I think that's how I mean, I think we called it a Shibua tone and we had like, you know, I don't know, there were like maybe six of us and, and we like shared food and, and then we like, you know, we would prepare like every month, somebody else, would, when we did it monthly, everybody else, somebody would prepare like some particular text and, you know, share it with the group and we would learn it together and discuss it. And then, so then we did that in a big way over the, the two days. So nice. So you basically really met through a, through Torah study and through a uh, mutual friends that, that brought you together over that. I think shared so. It's, it's been years. So that's what sticks in my <laughs> it's mind. It's been a long time, but I, I guess that's how it. <laughs> so yeah, we, so we knew each other, I guess, sort of post, you know, high school and, and college, but early. Right. Yeah. I guess when we were single, you know, yeah. sometimes, you know, some of our friends got married and then you sort of connected with other people that, you know, sort of reorganized, meet new, new single women. And so that's kind of how we. Amazing. So Obviously, at some point, you decided that you were going to not only study Nachmanides together, but engage in a venture together. So what was the genesis of that process? So I guess I had a son who is now 21. But when he was 14 years old, he was asked to leave high school in, I guess, January of his freshman year of high school. And um, he kind of, you know, not been such a student ever. I mean, you know, very bright, but not so focused on school and worked really hard. He was too smart for school. <laughs> <laughs> he worked very hard to find him a school that seemed like it would be right and, you know, a little creative, slightly alternative, not, not the traditional model necessarily. And at first, you know, you know, when it was all new, seemed great. Things were going really well. They had basketball team. He was happy. And, you know, eventually he sort of stopped following some rules and, they, you know, it just kind of fell apart. And they said, you know, either you follow the rules or you can go. And so he went. So as a parent who I never really knew that kids could not be in school. Like, what happened? <laughs> like, it was just completely new, you know, for myself and my husband. We were just both kind of probably more like of the intellectual bent. You know, we do school. We like school. We do more school. And the idea of like, just like, not a not being in school, not having a schedule and it was just completely alien. But here we have this child and he's in bed and he's not getting out. <laughs> he has nowhere to go. So, you know, 
I go into like high gear, call all the organizations, try to see like, okay, who can help with this? What can, you know, my son, obviously the first attempt was to find him a school, but there was nothing that was going to work out at least for, you know, it was the middle of the year. And, you know, to get somebody to take a kid who was asked to leave in the middle of the year is not exactly something that is easily done. So after kind of spending some time on that, and then I'm like, okay, he just needs something to do, like something, because this is really bad. Because, you know, I think every day that you do nothing is just a day that you find something to do that is probably not in your best interest. And that's pretty much what was happening to him slowly. He was creating networks of other kids who were not in school and just they find their own entertainment, which, you know, I guess when 14-year-olds are on their own, finding their own way to fill their time, it, it can, you know, maybe not always be the best for them. And... So that was where we were. And I tried to say, okay, like maybe I'll find him a job, you know, at least something, he should do something. So I called some of the organizations that deal with, you know, youth at risk and try to see if anybody knew anybody. And somebody after like, you know, 15 phone calls, someone referred me to someone who was doing this sort of ad hoc. And, you know, he told me that he kind of goes up and down the, the streets and, um, Brooklyn and just sees who will take, you know, a kid who needs a job and, and he tries to like make matches. And, um, another, I went to some support group and I was advised by, you know, a pretty prominent rabbi that, oh, we tried that, but it doesn't really work because, you know, the same kids who aren't going to go to school, aren't going to go to work. So you put them in a job and then it fails. So it's just, it's, it's not going to work, you know, like, because I asked him, you know, well, what about this? Can't we find, isn't there someone who's doing this, you know, finding something for these kids to do? Because like this, to me, this like, you know, empty days seem to be a really big problem to me. Anyway, ultimately, my son ended up, despite all my efforts that failed, he found himself his own job. And he, he had a relationship with his employer for two years from the ages of 15 to 17. He worked. He got up every day at 6.15 a.m. I made him four sandwiches um, every day so that he could, he was doing physical labor. He was working for a mover who was really an amazing guy who does this all the time. You know, he always needs workers and there are kids and there are a lot of kids out there who need something to do. And he pretty much, you know, took him on as like, you know, like his, his second child, you know, or his fourth child. He has three. So sometimes when kids are 14 and 15, they may not be relating to their parents so well. And, you know, especially when they're struggling in some way. And this, this guy was, he basically, you know, he kind of got my son and he got what he was going through and he was just taught him how to be like responsible to give good customer service and really be a mensch. And so when it was quiet, when there was no work, you know, he was busy looking for like chesed projects. So we live in Clifton, Passaic, there are a lot of low lying areas. So I always remember this, his boss, my son's boss had a lot of like all kinds of toys, like, you know, so this thing he had towed people out of, you know, the, if they got stuck, right, if they got stuck in snowbanks, if they got stuck in water, they would go around, like, looking for people who were stuck and pull them out, you know, and that was, you know, something to do during the free time. So I guess from that whole experience, 
And I also, I met a lot of kids. My son had a lot of friends. And, you know, when they first came to my house, I was sometimes a little afraid of them. But as I got to know them, I just saw that these were kids who, for some reason, didn't fit into the regular traditional school system. And as soon as, you know, something was slightly out of line, you know, they were out of the program and basically finding their own way and suffering because of like rejection from the community and just feeling so different. And um, I just saw there were so many like beautiful, talented kids who were kind of stuck in this sort of like being ostracized and feeling terrible about themselves just because maybe they don't learn well, maybe they have ADHD, maybe they suffered some kind of trauma and are, you know, acting a little different, you know, for any number of reasons, or like maybe their social skills aren't so great, any number of reasons that they don't fit in, they're on the fringes. And I just felt like if we could kind of bring them back and connect them with people in the community who could care about them and show them that there is a place for them. Originally, we thought of it more like, okay, we're going to place kids in jobs and that will be, that'll work, you know, but obviously it is a lot more involved and there, you know, there's a lot of building up that needs to happen before someone can successfully be placed at a job. I want to hear from Rivka, where were you at this time? Did you start hearing from Yael about this situation with her son and what was going on? Was Were you part of that process? Were you thinking about these issues in, in your own way? So because we were such good friends, I definitely heard about what was going on. And it was very painful to watch and to feel like, oh, my God, like this could turn into such a bad situation so quickly. And there's like nothing that we can do because no one's willing to help us or to help her. So it was so frustrating and frightening. And then when he found a job, it was like, life altering. Um, so after that happened, y'all always said, wow, like, why isn't anyone doing this? This is like such a good idea. So we talked about it. We said, this is like a great idea. How come no one's doing it? Then we started saying, hmm, doesn't look like anyone's doing it. <laughs> and we heard that the OU was looking for, um, they had just started this OU impact accelerator, which was a way to promote novel um, solutions to problems plaguing the Orthodox community. And we heard about the application and we felt like, okay, no one's doing this. If we're going to do it, we need to do it now. So we applied to that. And the way we decided was like, if we win, we're just going to go forward and start our organization. So during that application process, we went and we did, I put back on my consulting hat <laughs> from many, many years ago. And we went and we did what's called benchmarking and best practices. We went back to all those organizations that Yal had reached out to when her son was going through it. And we said, look, in all these years, have you done this? Did you, you know, decide to offer job services and whatever? And it seemed like they really didn't do anything past what she had heard they were doing, you know, th those few years before. And I was up to the point where I had left Pfizer to raise my family and I was going to go back to work <laughs> looking for different opportunities. And then I guess my husband felt that this was so important, just looking around our own community. Unfortunately, just if you go out at night, you see the street corners are packed with kids. Like y'all was mentioning, these wonderful, wonderful young adults that just don't fit in and they find each other and it ends up not being a healthy situation often. And he just felt like if 
you know, this is something that needs to be done and we could do it, then I should do it. So that's what we did. We um, built our whole organization. We piloted it. We had certain like internal deadlines that we made for ourselves while we were doing the application. Like we had to make, have a pilot with a certain amount of people to make sure that it works and pressure tested. And then we would finalize our application and thank God all those things went into place. We had, um, you know, a law firm that filed for us pro bono our all of our documents. So we're a 501c3, we're a non-for-profit, we couldn't, you know, donations are tax deductible. So that was important. We had our name, we, you know, we did all those things. And then we just, uh, I guess we really haven't stopped since then. So, um, you know, the OU was really that, I guess it was like a sign from heaven almost (laughs) like, okay, no one's doing it. Here's this opportunity. We're going to just do it. And, And we did. And we really, thank God, positively impacted the lives of of a lot of kids since then. So it's, it's been, it's been great in many ways. Um, Sad that it has to, you know, exist, but yeah, we'll talk maybe more about how we revised and sort of um, incorporated many other parts to our program that make it so robust. Amazing. I, I just want to understand, you know, first of all, I am surprised to hear that there were no other organizations doing this kind of work. You know, I've had people, for example, like Tzvikluk from Amudim came on our show and others who have done a lot of work in the space of helping young people who are struggling from trauma, abuse, you know, don't fit into the quote unquote, the system. I'm surprised that this kind of a service hasn't existed before. Why do you think there was such a void in this particular arena, Yael? I would say that the primary service that's offered, there are, is mental health support, support groups for parents, drop-in centers. You know, there's a lot of just kind of giving kids a place to go and parents somewhere to go to talk about their experience and to get, you know, support and ideas from each other and from professionals. I guess the practical, you know, I'm not saying it's not being done at all, but it, and I think it is being done a little kind of ad hoc here and there in different places but there was no one, I guess, that was devoted specifically to that. And I guess when I was looking for that, I couldn't find it. <laughs> Let's just say that. And so then I said, okay, well, maybe I just didn't find it. So we tried to, we spoke to like all the organizations that were aware of that work in this space and asked them, do you do this? And some said, yes, we do that. Yeah, we do. It's included in our service package. And there are a couple of people who actually have like a business model where they employ a lot of kids who aren't in school. So, you know, there are some places that exist, but I guess really if a kid is out of school struggling and wanting to know where to go from here practically, that was something that is not is not done in any formal way. And that was what we we really created. Fabulous. Yeah, I was just gonna say, and all those organizations that we did go out to then send us their kids. So we are getting referrals from all those organizations that you're mentioning and we help with the practical. So Rivka, what is the meat of what the organization does? The concept sounds pretty simple. Help struggling or, you know, wayward, so to speak, teens find a job. <laughs> I mean, but obviously I think there's a lot more to it than that. And maybe a lot of surrounding support, whether it's preparation for that or sustaining them through it. What is what is really the meat of what you're offering? So I think we started saying, okay, let's just help them find jobs. Then we realized like so many kids, they've left school. I mean, we have kids that left school in elementary school. So when you say to them, what are you good at? They'd be like, what do you mean when I go up? I'm good at nothing. And that was probably what everyone told them their whole life. And that was so painful for us to hear. And so Yal, using her training, gathered together a whole array of different testing 
that she offers to anyone that comes to us so they can actually, when we say to them, what are you good at? And they say they don't know. She works with them to figure out what they're good at. So she has a whole thing. And I guess I'll speak to it on strength discovery. How do I know what I'm good at? How do I figure out what my strengths are? And then once they feel like, okay, there's something that they are good at, you know, she works to help them build their confidence in that. And then I do the career coaching. Okay. Well, how do you now showcase that on an interview? How do you behave on an interview? How do you behave at work? How do you showcase these things at work? How do you troubleshoot things that come up? Um, We've added through the years, many services. We also have an educational advocate that helps kids that don't have a diploma, either get a diploma, get a high school equivalency diploma, get into college, get into Israel. He's wonderful. We also have a wonderful resume coach that works on how to write a resume, even when you have very little experience. And then he works with them on job search strategy. How do you go about finding a job? You know, the pandemic sort of upended everything. So we're constantly changing. First, it was impossible to find a job. Now you can find a job, but no one's willing to pay very much. And how do you stick in your job? So there's so many things that require a lot of handholding and coaching. So I would say most of what we do, even though, yes, at the end, our goal is to get them a job or something to do each day. It's like, how do we get them there? And so it's very, very intense work often to do that. Um, We also started very recently do workshops at mainstream schools because they realize, wow, our kids don't know what they want to do when they finish high school or when they get back from Israel. So that was something that was wonderful where Yael ran with, you know, another colleague, some fantastic workshops on how do you know what you're good at? And that's something that we're rolling out to more places. I love that because I think as is often the case, something that's designed as a intervention for people who are struggling, quote unquote, ends up benefiting everyone. <laughs> you know, we all need that extra attention and that extra support in some way, maybe not as overtly, but I love that you've brought that into the mainstream, so to speak. Rifko was talking about like the, the self-discovery, which I feel like is kind of ongoing with our clients. And like, then we do, we call it job matching and support. So we support the employers sometimes, like if the employer will say, you know, well, gee, I really wanted to do this, but here's what happened today. And I don't know if I could deal with that. So just sort of talking them through troubleshooting, giving ideas for the employer and the employee as needed, you know, really to, to help them get through it. You know, because when I was told this doesn't work, originally when they, when I asked for it for my son, they said, well, it's not going to work because the kids who go to school who aren't in school aren't going to be able to come to work. And I find that to be absolutely untrue. However, they may need some support you know, and they, on both ends, you know, and just because a kid can't sit in school or class doesn't mean he can't use himself in another way and be an amazing work. You know, kids with ADHD could be like, wonderful in the workplace, even if school is not so well suited to some of them. They could also be amazing podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, ADHD is, you know, I always say kid does not have to be a disability. You know, it's actually, it can be, you know, they can be so creative and, and able to focus so well on things that they're interested in so that it, it's kind of, you know, it can be really an asset in the workplace. Rivka, what do you see as the biggest pain point for young people? And it could be, again, people that are coming from difficult backgrounds or people in general from your vantage point uh, entering the job market. Is, is it that people need like yells helping them with the, the skills assessment and identifying, you know, kind of their uh, capacities and, and their why, so to speak? Is it more the hard skills of how to 
write, or how to put together a resume, or how to show the soft skills of showing up on time. Things like where where do you see the greatest pain points for people? I think really the soft skills are the most important skills, and hard skills anyone can really learn at any point. So when they're ready and they want to learn a certain skill set, they probably can. I think the soft skills are the most important and they're the hardest to really learn. But again, it can be learned. I think expectation setting is really very important. To me, that's like almost the number one for both the kids in our population that we work with and kids in the mainstream. I think today people think there's instant gratification. They look at you know, people like Steve Jobs or they'll look at Elon Musk and they'll say, okay, well, okay, all these people dropped out of school and they just started this company and they're gazillionaires and that's me. I'm going to roll out of bed tomorrow and I'm going to be a gazillionaire. And they don't realize all the hard work that went in because you don't really read about that as much. And you see all these quirky people and somehow they leave out those little details. And I think that's very important for people to realize that nobody rolls out of bed as the CEO unless it's their father's company and they usually end up crashing the company. So <laughs> so you, you have to start somewhere. And I think that's like the hardest thing to really teach any young person, whether they're in our population or not. So that's the first thing. And then I think the soft skills are very important and they're the most transferable between jobs. And we're seeing that in the pandemic, especially like I went to, we always, um, we consider ourselves a learning organization. So we're always taking courses and learning in our fields. And I went to the Wall Street Journal Career Summit. And at that summit, they were talking about this very thing, how soft skills, and this is something we had been doing. So it felt really good to hear them say this as well, that they were saying how soft skills are the most transferable right now, because that's what people care about. They know that you could learn stuff. And especially people that are looking to change careers, which is so common now in the pandemic, when people are reassessing their lives and saying, I really don't want to work 80 hours a week. I'd rather work 40 and make less money. But how do I, you know, shift my whole career now? Well, they can shift it by going back to what are my soft skills and then showing showcasing that to a new uh, potential employer. And that's the same thing that we try to teach our kids, that your soft skills are really who you are as a person. And we have a whole exercise that we work very intensely on and how to showcase your soft skills, how to showcase things like, okay, I'm a friendly person. I'm an honest person. Um, I'm diligent. Like those are, those are really why you're being hired. You're hiring, you're being hired because that's who you are and that's who your boss wants. They don't really care. So you could like, you know, add a little better, subtract a little bit worse, like give a calculator. Like, so a lot of the hard skills are, are less important. So to speak, it sounds like they're looking for traits. They're looking for certain traits that we call like more soft skills that stay with you for life. And you can learn them. But once you learn them, they're, they're, they're you. They become who you are. And that's really important. What's really remarkable to me is that it feels like each of you in your own way lived a life that was really building you towards this initiative. You know, at Yale, in terms of your mental health background, then of course, with your own personal familial situation. And then Rivka, with all those years in the corporate world and, you know, becoming so conversant in that realm and being able to, to converge those together and offer this in the Jewish community is very powerful. Do you, do you ever stop and reflect on the fact that, hey, maybe I, w- I was really kind of primed for this throughout the years of my life? Yeah. I guess I would say, you know, in the moments when, for me, the best moments in, of this work are like when there's like a light bulb going on that like I see in someone's face that they feel like kind of acknowledged, appreciated, valued, in, in a way that they haven't before. For that, I feel like 
okay, <laughs> all this, you know, creating a nonprofit, which is not a picnic sometimes, is really worth it just to see the, the light in someone's eyes when, like, they feel like they're someone, which is, you know, <laughs> really, that's really a beautiful thing. And that, that's, that's, what, that's what makes me feel like, okay, <laughs> this is all worth it, you know. And Rivka, how about you? Did you do you ever stop and, and reflect on how all that time, you know, traveling the country for uh, investigating drugs or whatever it might be prepared you for this? I do, actually. And I feel like it's so interesting how life takes you on these paths. And even sometimes I think about like my personality where, you know, my former life at Pfizer, I used to have to think about, OK, what is this drug going to look like in 10 years from now? How do we prepare the marketing now? How do we prepare the name now? How do we prepare this now for 10 years, man? I feel like, wow, that's really the way I try to look at our clients and say, who are these people? Like they're so, if you look at them now, people often misunderstand who they are and you have to look past that and you have to say, who can they be and how can they use those wonderful skills that they have to get on that path? So I think that the skills that I picked up through the years really are very helpful. And I feel very grateful and blessed that, you know, God sent, <laughs> I guess, me on this journey. And then I'm able to help kids that, that need the help. That's a beautiful metaphor. Thinking about the, the long-term impact of these or eventuality or potentiality of these drugs, so to speak, and the long-term potential of, you know, of teenagers who often can be harrowing in their uh, in their difficult times. It's just starting to close Maybe you could give me one or two examples of of young men or women who you've encountered, obviously, you know, without their names, but just stories or avatars, if you will, that encapsulate the work that you're doing and, and how this can really make an impact on the community. I'll just talk about, you know, the person that I'm working with most closely recently. So she grew up in Brooklyn and uh, I would say a difficult family, you know, was kind of abandoned by her father at a young age and just struggled with stepfather, but really went through school fine, did great, like was a good student and, you know, went to Israel for a year, did the whole, you know, whole traditional track. And then when she came back, just kind of fell apart emotionally, just couldn't get herself on track, sort of everything. When there was no more structure, she sort of couldn't keep it going. And, um, really was, you know, out of commission with like serious depression for a few years. And when we met her, she was kind of trying to get back on track and we, we set her up with um, some job interviews, but she was like falling into a depression. And I realized that she's not even close to being able to go on any interviews right now. She can't, she can't even get out of bed. So at that point we just pivoted to, okay, I'll call her every week, once a week, talk to her and you know, just encourage her about all the skills and all the talents that I saw when I first met her and did that for a few months. And eventually she was ready to get up and go. And then we we helped her to prepare for interviews, to strategize. And she got a job and she's been there for close to a year. And then now is thinking about maybe moving on to something else, but always reaching out to us and we're supporting her through this, like this journey of like, you know, what's okay. When is it okay to ask for a raise? How do I manage, you know, some interpersonal stuff that's going on at, at work. And, you know, then if she's got a new interview and can she, what, how, what, how much money could she ask for? Just, you know, just being with her in this process of, of moving from 
you know, just sort of floundering and lost to into like the world of work. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Rivka, any standout uh, to you? Yeah, we just had someone that was asked to leave two schools um, and our educational advocate worked with her. We also just, just it happens to be these stories that we're, um, yeah, I'll mention a female, I'm mentioning a female. We work, I would say 50% of our clients are male. So it's. Most. I was wondering as you said that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but our educational advocate worked with the family to think about different schools and um, our team worked together to think about what would be a better placement. And it was kind of a different mindset for the family to go to a different type of school. And we just got a note from them. They came back from PTA. The student is a straight A student, gets up at 630 in the morning, off on the subway to school. So it's really life-changing for this young adult. And um, we have another person that he had a very strong interest in a certain industry and we worked really hard to find a job in that industry. And he worked for an amazing employer for a year and then has since moved on to something, you know, different, but used those skills to find his own job now. So really these are examples of kids that I think without our intervention, the stories could be quite different. Beautiful. And I would say they come back also, you know, like if we help them a little bit and they move on or they disappear and they're not ready to work, you know, a year later, they can call us back and say, hey, okay, now I'm ready. Can you help me with this? Like they know that we're there as a resource and support. What's next for work at it? Uh, is there any further ventures that you're, you're, or dimensions that you'd like to add to the toolkit, so to speak? I think that we really want to try to roll out our services more seriously into the mainstream because we do get a lot of inquiries about it. So just making the connections there, um, there's definitely a strong need. And it's just a matter of whether schools have the resources to, you know, to have it or not. But even on an individual level, we get parents that call and say, you know, my kid's not in your population, but we really can use your assistance. So we're realizing more and more, as we discussed earlier, how important that is. So we're hoping to do that more. Um, and then also just in general, we'd like to run workshops where we have both our population and mainstream kids together so that they can meet each other and really have have healthy friendships. And that's something that we're trying to work on where we have people from the mainstream, people from our, our, our population that are coming together with the goal of, okay, what am I doing with my life now? And hopefully it'll be, build friendships that will be healthy for everybody. Beautiful. And Yael, where can people learn more about Work At It and find you online? Workatit.org. Amazing. I wasn't taken, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you guys nabbed it. Beautiful. Workatit.org. If you can't spell it, then uh, maybe you need, we need some of those services. I don't know. It's, it's pretty simple. Workatit.org. Find them online. And it seems like an incredible organization. I imagine you accept donations. It sounds like you are a nonprofit. And uh, obviously the uh, the OU I'm sure has been very supportive, but you can uh, always use more. So uh, Yael Wedek, Rivka Ariel, Work At It founders, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.